Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is now supported by Harry's, a product I've been looking for for a long time. I was getting fed up with the exorbitant cost and inaccessibility of razor blades, and then Harry's came along to offer a great shaving experience at a reasonable price, and without the pain of having to hunt them out at the back of some out-of-the-way chemists. The ergonomically designed shaving handle, the smooth glide of the blades, and especially the cool feel of the shave gel, which doesn't reek like disinfectant, is a great package. And it's delivered to your door. Get your special trial set for just £3.95 at harrys.com forward slash the analyst. That's harrys.com forward slash the analyst. Hello there. Simon Hughes and Simon Mann here, the analyst inside cricket. And I've got some news for you. I am not the next England selector. One newspaper has approached me tonight and said, we hear that you may be the the new England selector about to be announced. And I had to deny it and say, no, I'm afraid it's not going to be me. But we are going to talk about selection and, in a way, the new fangled approach to selection. In fact, interestingly, the selection applicants all went to see Andrew Strauss and Tom Harrison and one other person at the ECB to pitch their wares. And they were asked one simple question, is selection art or science? And they had to go away and write a a small presentation and come back and argue whether selection is art or science. Now, you've been talking to someone, Simon, who has a bit of an answer to that. I've been talking to someone who believes that selection is a science. It's very scientific. And he makes a very bold claim as well. Do you think you could pick a better T20 team than the England selectors? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to lie. I think that they've got a lot wrong, in, particularly in T20. That's Dan Weston, who's involved with Sports Analytics Advantage. Basically, I mean, Dan's a, an interesting character. He is someone who has been a professional gambler on tennis and has made money gambling on tennis and provides a lot of stats to the tennis circuit 
He actually prefers cricket to tennis, so he's turned his attention to cricket and the stats in cricket to see whether they can work for the game and whether the game can be improved through stats, whether teams can be improved. Of course, 2020 is, is really what it's all about in a way, although in actual fact he believes that stats work for one-day international cricket or 50-over cricket and for test cricket as well. We're going to hear plenty more from him during this podcast. One question I want to ask you is, should we all breathe a sigh of relief that you're not going to be an England selector? Oh, thanks. Thanks. Well, no, well, should we? I I'm don't breathing, know. I'm bringing the side. Why don't you want to be an England selector? Well, I, I just think it's it's a poison chalice. I think it's an incredibly difficult job. I don't think you uh, get too much credit when you get it right, and you get a lot of blame when you get it wrong. And well, don't uh, get it wrong then. Well, it's, it, I mean, it's a, it's a really tough job. I mean, I I think if I was answering that question, is selection art or science? I would say it's a bit of both. Certainly, in terms of Test cricket, you want to try and sense about a player as much as you want to know about their statistics. And that's why I think sometimes it's easy to criticise a Trevor Bayliss. He doesn't need to go and watch any country. He can watch all the cricket on the website, watch the clips of players. But you don't get that much real sense of a batsman if you just watch a few clips of falls on the edited highlights on the ECB website, for instance. You do, I think, need to go and actually watch a player as well as see exactly what they do and how many runs they score. Well, it's also about learning about a player as well, about a player's character and presumably how they fit into a, a team structure. I mean, should that be important? We, there's a famous case, of course, in English cricket of, of Kevin Peterson, and it was felt that Kevin Peterson didn't fit into the England structure. But I would say, without a shadow of a doubt, that he's the most exciting batsman I've seen in all the time that I've been watching England play Test cricket. And that's where you, you have to balance art and science because Peterson, and this will annoy the, the Peterson fans undoubtedly, but Peterson in the end, his disadvantages outweighed his advantages. He was obviously a fantastic player, but he was also an incredibly irritating and untrustworthy person in the team. Ultimately, he wasn't necessarily at the start. So in the end, you have to balance out what's his output and what are the repercussions or what are the downsides of that output. And once the downsides outweigh the output, the guy has to go. And I think that's what happened. Do you believe in stats, then? Do you, do you think stats are the answer? Actually, um, it's funny, but when you, when you were county cricketer, that was the first thing you went to. Do you remember in the, in the olden days, the Telegraph and the Times and maybe even the Mail published the first-class averages once a week? Who was top of the averages? And... So you always went to look at that to see what your average was if you didn't know it. Some batsmen obviously knew it to the third decimal point. And the other thing was, at Lords, the averages were always posted up on the notice board just as you came in at the back door of the pavilion. So you'd go up and look at it and sort of worry about it sometimes or feel kind of quite proud if you were high up in your county's averages. So, I mean, they're absolutely vital in test cricket, I think. But obviously the analytics and the data... The, the traditional data in one-day cricket aren't as effective now. And so that's why we've got this now range of computer scientists and really highly qualified data analysts who are working overtime to try and help particularly international teams, but even some domestic teams, pick better sides. Yeah, because you, you've got to go beyond the averages, haven't you? I mean, we're not talking about average. When we talk about stats these days, we're not talking about just pure averages. I mean, there, there are stats around quite simple averages that work. I mean, you know, one classic one is, is James Vince's average in the second division versus James Vince's average in the first division, and his first division stats are way below his second division stats, which suggests 
you know, that when you step up to a higher level, you're going to struggle. I remember there was a, a case of, of Paul Terry in the 1980s who was picked to play for England, Hampshire play, picked to play for England. I think he'd made 500s in the summer. And he said, well, fantastic. The guy's got 500s, he's banging form, he's picked to play against the West Indies and he broke his arm in his, his first test match against a high-quality attack. I suppose you could say, well, that could happen to anyone. But if you look at who he'd made the hundreds against, I think it was one against Gloucestershire, one against Glamorgan, who were you know, relatively weak sides, one against Oxford University. So the point being that what about the value of those hundreds? So what we're talking about here is... I think more sophisticated stats. Let's hear from Dan West. I actually I started by asking him, what's the balance when it, when it comes to selecting players and evaluating players? What's the balance? Is it is it about stats or the traditional eye, the, the eye of the ex pro or the eye of the selector? How how important is that against stats? It's a mixed bag, really. I think that that there's definitely room for them to work in conjunction with each other and I, and I think that's the ideal situation really so for example stats and data working with working with that experienced eye test from from a director of cricket or a franchise owner or or, or a coach is is the ideal scenario personally i think that the eye test can be very biased in terms of selection of players and, and being seduced by aesthetics whereas the data probably likes some more of the unfashionable names. I think when they're married together, that's probably the most powerful combination. Give me some examples then. Players who you think are, are overrated according to your stats and some players who are underrated according to your stats. OK, well, what I thought I'd do here would be to sort of split it between Test and, and T20, for example. So overrated players according to, to my algorithm, uh, James Vince, Dawid Milan, Moeen Ali, Butler to a certain extent, although the sample size for him is quite small in, in Red Bull cricket, um, perhaps because he hasn't been playing and England have been doing relatively poorly, people want him back more because he hasn't, he hasn't been around for, or available or selected. Uh, Jake Ball as well is another player who, who I think the data, data doesn't reflect well on. Whereas a lot of players in county cricket perhaps probably deserve more of a chance. We've got... Um, I very much prefer Steve Finn over Jake Ball, for example, numbers-wise. Um, and I also like Steve Finn a lot in 2020, and I think that he's got a lot of the tools that are available to even be a franchise player for around the world, uh, solely almost. Um, players in county cricket as well, I think, probably could do a, a bit of a better job than the likes of Vince. Sam Northeast, Liam Livingston, uh, Ben Folks, whose who's batting has really come on quite well, and um, Burns at Surrey as well, I think... I think could, could be ones who would be potential replacements. When we're talking stats, are we saying that stats are more relevant to white ball cricket than to red ball cricket? It's definitely got application for both. White ball cricket is, is so useful because the, deci- the matches are shorter, so every decision is matters more because, because it has a potential to have a greater impact on a match. But there's definitely application for both, and, and we can formulate strategies for in-play tactics or, or recruitment, retention, selection decisions in, in all formats of cricket, really. How receptive is cricket to the way you work and to the, the stats models that you've created? I think there's probably a bit of... A stumbling block there in some ways I think that the, some coaches are definitely more receptive than others the ones I've spoke to seem to have a genuine interest but then they will because they're the ones who have agreed to meet me I suppose um, a lot of the other ones quite seem, seem more like they, they trust their own methods and, that, and that's, that's fair enough from, from their perspective but I think perhaps they're missing a trick and, and the stats and data analysis when, when used in the right way can give clubs a real competitive advantage Are we talking about 
cricket money ball here. Is that basically what we're talking about? Yeah, I suppose it is really. Yeah, obviously, obviously, um, money ball is based on using scarce resources in terms of finances to, to produce a winning team, and that's definitely the case with cricket. I mean, if you're looking at it from a T20 perspective, I would back my data to, to pick a, a very competitive T20 franchise team with half the budget of, of, of the ones that most of, most of the franchises are spending. And, and so therefore there is, that, there is that opportunity. However, I think in the IPL, for example, I think it's, there's a rule where you have to spend a certain percentage of your budget, so it's obviously less applicable in that particular, particular competition. When you watch something like the IPL yeah. and when you see IPL teams selected, do you think, no, no, not that player. You, you should have gone for, for him instead. Often. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of mistakes that are made, both in the auction room and in player selection and in play tactics as well. So Yuvraj Singh is someone, someone that I focused on a bit recently. So as he's got older, his data batting-wise has, has really deteriorated and particularly he's got a very poor strike rate against spin bowling. So I wouldn't have signed him for, for, for Kings Eleven anyway and then I certainly wouldn't have batted him at four when they were had a, had a great start I think they were about 130 off 12 or 13 overs yesterday when he came in and um, yeah when they had Finch in the locker and a couple of others lower, lower down the order as well who were, who were decent hitters and they put, put Uvraj in at four well, no middle overs as well when there's typically more spin bowlers bowled it seemed a big mistake I suppose one of the issues in the Indian Premier League to some extent is iconic players and there's an attraction to iconic players that seems to supersede stats and, and, and money ball selections. I think that's probably pretty fair. Um, definitely with, with Yuvraj, for example, maybe he's, he's worth quite a bit commercially and then you've got the example where MS Dhoni, who's still a decent 2020 player, albeit with limitations against spin, um, he went for a ton of money, I think it was about 13 crore as a retained player and, and it was a, a ton more than, than really he was his, his market value should have been but then obviously he's got that market, marketing benefit as well um, but then you look at it say football which is quite an evolved economy and you wouldn't see Manchester United buying a player really for commercial value or you know, a top Premier League player for commercial value alone and you know that seems to happen in cricket more so perhaps cricket's still got to evolve in terms of, in terms of that area Last weekend I saw one of your tweets and you said Jason Roy should not be playing ahead of Colin Munro. Colin Munro is rated much higher on your stats mm. than Jason Roy. Jason Roy went out there, smashed 91 not out and won the game for his team. What do you say to that? OK, so first of all, if Jason Roy's listening, um, it doesn't mean you're a bad player. <laughs> it, it just means that, that, that Munro is rated higher by my algorithm than, than Roy is and that's both from a, an average a batting average perspective and a strike rate perspective as well and what it would really mean is that that the Munro is maybe two or three percent more likely to play that type of innings that, that, that Roy did than Roy would be himself but that doesn't mean that Roy's not capable of playing that innings as well he's a very good T20 player and he's certainly got that in his locker as he demonstrated there but um, Roy does tend to be a bit of a hit or miss type player where, where he either he either goes big or, or, or goes home and, and yeah I mean, both of them are good players but I think Roy, uh, Roy's slightly worse than Munro so this is just about ruthless strategy, if you like. I guess it is, yeah, yeah. It's every, every player's got their value, and, and every player 
unless you're Viracoli, will have players who are better than you. So, yeah, it's 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 really ruthless in terms of yeah selection. If you're going to pick the best team for a franchise on a given day. Interesting to listen to Dan Weston. Actually, there's quite a few people knocking around now and quite a few databases that different teams, different domestic teams, sometimes international teams are using. I know, for instance, that some of the county teams and actually a couple of the IPL teams use a specific system that really evaluates uh, T20 players on their performance in the first 10 balls against certain bowlers, their performance against certain types of spin, their performance in different phases of the game, even their performance at different grounds, their evolution of their strike rate over their, their career, the number of dot balls that they use up in the first you know, 20 balls of their innings, etc. So there's a real minutiae in the way that people have a look at this, uh, these stats now. I mean, I, looking at test cricket, obviously there's, there's different ways of looking at test players. I, I actually sort of did this little countdown when I was obviously not getting out enough. And I looked at the, the top test run scorers of all time and I worked out how many innings they took to get to their first test 50 and their first test 100. And, you know, these are all, you know, Tendulkar, Ponting, Callis, etc., etc., right down to the last one is Viv Richards. So it's about the top 22 test run makers. None of them took more than 10 innings to get their first 50 and only a couple of them took more than 20 innings to get their first 100. And those two people were Shivran Chandapool and Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh actually took 42 innings to get his first Test 100. But all the others in the top leading run scorers took less than 20 innings to make their first 100. In many cases, they took only about five or six innings. And I guess, you know, you could just use that barometer against James Vince and Mark Stoneman, for instance... And James Vince has played 22 innings now, hasn't made a Test 100, and Mark Stone's played 18. So they're on the fringe of players who you think probably won't be massive run scorers. And obviously in Mark Stone's case, he's 30 years old now, so he probably hasn't got time to make thousands and thousands of Test runs anyway. But that, I think, that 20 innings sort of landmark, sort of measure of whether you've made a Test 100 might be quite a good benchmark for whether someone's going to go on and be successful. Or not. Mm. OK, we're going to break there. After the break, could you be a better selector than the England selectors? We're going to hear Dan Weston's views on that. Welcome back. At the start of this podcast, Simon, you said you didn't want to be an England selector. But do you think, though, you could pick a better T20 side, one-day international side, test side than the selectors? I think they've got it right with the one-day side. I don't think they've got it right with the test side. Uh, I wouldn't have picked James Vince for the last few tests. I thought David Milan looked good when he got picked, and I would have put him in at number three. You know, I wouldn't have taken Stuart Broad and played him in the Ashes. Uh, I, I just couldn't see him taking wickets. But I can see him taking wickets in England. So I think I could have picked a couple of slightly better people uh, than the selectors, but... I don't know whether that would have made any difference to the result in the end. I just don't think we had enough. England didn't have enough people to choose from of the requisite quality to to beat Australia in Australia. And, you know, it must be a lottery being the selectors at the moment because, you know, we just had the county season starting. Five matches in the season so far have been abandoned without a ball being bowled. That includes some of the 
university games. And that's the most in 10 years that have been abandoned for a whole season, never mind just the first three weeks. And they've been playing on these green pitches. The one at Lords was barely distinguishable from the outfield, nipping about all over the place. Batsmen who've been just knocking up in the indoor nets. So they're trying to hit everything on the up. And the ball on a grassy pitch is nipping around, zipping around and taking the edge. And teams are getting bowled out for under 100. Well, and the first round of matches, in terms of England selection, I mean, completely irrelevant, you'd say, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. Well, one man made 100. That was a number nine, David Visa, the South African, for Sussex. A spinner took two wickets. One spinner took two wickets. All the rest were, was, were seamers. I mean, the one performance that really stood out was Ollie Stone playing for Warwickshire against Sussex. Bowled with pace. Hmm. I'm only going from watching clips online because hmm. it's impossible to get around and watch all the action. But there were some there were some rapid deliveries. And he's someone that actually caught the eye last year. I watched him play in, in T20. And he, he's, he's sharp. Hmm. So England needing pace. Someone like Ollie Stone is worth keeping an eye on. Someone who's got that... Bit extra, it, eight wickets. It depends who you talk to, though, about whether you think England need pace. Because I was at the the Wisdom dinner at Lords last week, and one of the people there won Cricketer of the Year in 1978, I think, Mike Hendrick, the former Derbyshire yeah. and Knotts fast bowler. You know, fantastic bowler, line and length, bit of out movement, and he just said, "You need good bowlers. Never mind about the pace. Yeah. You just need people who can bowl well." And we talked about the whippiness of your wrist. If you've got a good whippy wrist and you can really get the ball to zip off the pitch, then you're in business in English conditions, especially. And he identified bowlers like Ben Code of Yorkshire, Jake Ball, actually. Uh, who he thought would have had a lot of potential, Joss Tong of uh, Worcestershire. Mm. So, you know, players like that who may not be rapid, but just hit the seam and nip it around either way. And, of course, at this time of year, they are the perfect bowlers. But sometimes their figures are flattered by the conditions. So don't you think England need pace abroad? Well, well, or do I, you think they yeah. don't need pace at home then? I, they, I think they do need pace abroad, without any doubt. And I think Mike Hendricks, sort of thinking back to the days of the 1980s and earlier, when there was a bit more in some of those Australian pitches, now, you know, you get a lot of these drop-in pitches, there's nothing there. So if you haven't got pace, or some kind of extravagant uh, ability to make the ball really move, then I think you might as well give up. Mm. And that's where England fell down. We had too many similar bowlers. We didn't have a left-arm bloke who came round the wicket or somebody with a bit more variety. Even a, a Stephen Finn, who's a bit taller, obviously he broke down before the series started. Someone who just has a different, asks a different question to the batsman. We just didn't have enough of that. But England have loads of great seamers. You know, I'm sure every batsman thinks... When am I going to have to face Timmy Murta at Lords in April? I might as well just give him a wicket now because he drops it on the sixpence. He nips it both ways. He's just an absolutely brilliant bowler early season. And not surprisingly, all the tosses for these first round of matches were uncontested and the, the, the home team got stuck in. Well, the other thing I've noticed as well, just watching lots of the clips of the wickets, I mean, you generally see the highlights, the fours and the wickets, and there seem to be more wickets than fours. Um, the, the way batsmen were playing, it looked as if they were playing blindfolded. They just didn't know what the ball was going to do. They were all sort of pushing out of the ball, nicking them. Well, they were playing a bit of T20 cricket as well, actually, a few of them. They were just playing these big shots, hoping to get away with it. And talking of T20... Yeah, talking of T20, let's hear a bit more from... 
Dan Weston. Now, I asked him a, a, the same question that I asked you after the break is, could you pick a better T20 team than the England selectors based on all the stats that you've built into your system? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I think that they've got a lot wrong, in, particularly in T20. Um, I wouldn't have Owen Morgan in a team for a start. Um, he's averaging in the low 20s in T20. What about what he brings as a as a captain? But does he? This is this is this is what we're discussing in terms of the eye test and stuff. If you look at his win percentage as a captain, it's not so good. Uh, McCullum as well, who's credited with with bringing giving Morgan this this aggressive mindset. Actually, his 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 record as a captain isn't great either. Um, Vittori as a coach, his win win percentage is 43, percent but he's getting jobs left, right, and centre. Uh, and, and perhaps it's easy to say, OK, well, he has this impact, but does he? We don't know that. Do, do these young English players coming through who have an aggressive mindset, are they doing it because of Owen Morgan's leadership? Or are they doing it because they've watched the IPL on TV growing up? You know, it's, it's easy to give someone the credit for something when maybe it doesn't exist. So could you pick a better England one-day international team than the selectors? 50 overs, uh, yeah. Although they're doing, better, they're doing much better in, in, in ODIs and I'm probably... I wouldn't disagree with them so much as I do in T20. Could you pick a better test team than the current England selectors, based on your stats? Yeah, again, the, there's, it's probably, uh, T20 is probably the area where I would disagree with the selectors the most. Um, I would pick real format specialists. Um, uh, Test-wise, yeah, there's some players, like I said, Vince uh, in particular, who would be someone that I would, I would say, OK, he's not going to be good enough because he only averages 30 in Div 1, basically, over a long period of time. Um, and it's virtually impossible for a player to, to improve their Div 1 average in the test arena. I think only three players this century have managed to do it over a decent sample size. And they are? Um, Thorpe, Collingwood and Stokes were the three players who have considerably improved their Div 1 batting average um, in the test arena in this century. So if you're saying, OK, well, Vince has got that potential, well, the numbers are really against him. Logically, if, if only those three players have done it this century, the, the, the maths are against him. And, and yeah, if, okay, well, if, you put, if you put a Livingston or a, a North East in for him, the, the, the effect isn't going to be great. You know, they're expected to average in test arenas like low to, low to mid-30s as well. But then if Vince's is 24-25, they're still gaining about eight runs per innings over, over Vince as well. So maybe the talent pool in, in England, from a batting perspective in particular, is not that deep compared to, say, India, for example. But, but maybe we, we aren't giving ourselves the best chance overall. Do you think your ideas will become more receptive to those in key positions in cricket? Slowly I'm pretty certain it will happen but maybe slowly to start with. Um, I think what it's going to take is for someone to really rip up the, the, the rule book so to speak and to, to have that overwhelming success with, with, with these data, moneyball methods, if you like, um, and, and, and then I think more people will sit up and take notice then. But it's going to take that one, one county to really take a chance on, on, on using this method, perhaps a uh, county with a small budget, for example, in England, um, to, to, for it to get more widespread. Well, that's Dan Weston from Sports Analytics Advantage. And what he is trying to do, basically... He's trying to get a job as a New England selector. <laughs> well, well, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to sell his data to a county or counties to say, look, this is what you, I can do for you. I can show you that 
these players have more value than mm. these players. Some mm. of the players that perhaps you're selecting in the moment. Well, one thing he, he, he was saying to me was that what he would be really interested in is advising counties on, on picking up players who are not playing much first-class cricket at the moment, but actually who are very talented cricketers, players who play in the first division or are associated with first division clubs actually need to go on loan to second division clubs and they could actually really give great value to some second division clubs. So there's a, a wasted talent pool out there. And he was quite passionate about that, talking about the, you know, I, I can really help counties. Anyway, of course, you know, like all of us, he, you know, he's looking for work. He's, he's looking to sell his wares. And, but it, I think it's a, it's a fascinating subject. Owen Morgan there, you know, he, he doesn't rate as England's mm. T20 captain. What about that? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been saying that. And uh, obviously his data analytics will show that Morgan's strike rate hasn't increased as much as the game's strike rate has increased. It has increased a bit, but the game has kind of started getting away from him. And it's interesting, actually, how he bats now as well, whereas he started as an innovator playing all sorts of funky shots. Now, actually, he plays a more orthodox game, just trying to hit down the ground, hit straight, try and almost give the inning stability while everyone else is playing the, the firework shots all around him. I think he still has a, a value. I think he has a sort of calming influence on the team. I think his presence just is, is reassuring to the rest of the players. He comes in a few times in a crisis and he doesn't seem to be too flustered by it. I think he's quite calm and cool in the field when things are going a little bit pear-shaped at times, which they obviously do in one-day cricket. He looks you know, fairly in control. The, the ice man, they call him. And... You know, the, the, the stress of being a one-day captain is, is immense. And in, in a way, I don't know if you want to burden anybody else with mm. that. I think it's good to have him there as a stabilising influence mm. and a guy with massive experience. Obviously, he hasn't still won a major one-day trophy as captain. He played in that T20 winning side in the West Indies in 2010, but he wasn't captain. So, you know, his crowning glory, his ultimate ambition is to win the World Cup mm. next year, and I think he should be given the chance mm. to. I think one of the really interesting points about listening to, to Dan is this is not about a vendetta against any player. This is just purely based on the stats. That does seem very cold in a way. We've been brought up to admire the way a cricketer plays. You know, someone like David Gower is one of my you know, huge favourites. I just loved watching him bat. Whereas you probably speak to Dan you say, David Gower you know, might not score enough runs. You know, there's someone better than him. And, but that's, not, that's, that, that's just based on the stats. And you know, people out there listening to this will have to you know, judge for themselves whether they think this is the way forward, whether this is uh, an acceptable way to judge cricketers, whether it's the way that cricketers should be judged. I have a, I have a really open mind about it. I think, I think as time goes on, I think this type of thing will, will take over more and more. And I think, I mean, it obviously has done because lots of, te lots of teams are exploring it, are they? Not every team, lots of teams are exploring it. And uh, it, it, I think it will happen more and more. I think more in T20 cricket mm. than, than uh, that's my sense, more in T20 cricket than in, in Test cricket or, or perhaps even ODI cricket. But I think definitely more white ball than red ball. That's, that's my sense anyway. But if you listen to Dan, he says it has a value for, for both mm. red ball and, and yeah, white ball I, I cricket. I mean, what, 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 of course, is the difference essentially between the two formats, if you like, red ball and white ball, is that the white ball is a more clinical game you know what the run rate required is. You know exactly who's bowling, how many overs a certain bowler's got left, You know exactly what the distance of the boundaries are. 
who's to come. You know, you haven't got a second innings or anything to consider. You know exactly what the the equation is. And so you need to be quite clinical about it. And in the same way, you need to be clinical about the, the team, that the people you select in a, in a team. And, you know, more and more teams in T20 particularly are using these kind of what you might call sabermetrics, which the Moneyball founder and originator, Michael Lewis of the Oakland Athletics, that's what they used. But test cricket still requires a mental application, an examination of your character to get through hard days and third and fourth days and adversity and patterns of play and getting out the same way a couple of times in a series and how do you deal with that? Sledging, you know, etc. Ball tampering. You know, there's so many areas of test cricket which test your mind as much as your technique. So I don't think statistics can be the only thing when you're judging a test player. Yeah. Uh, you, you talked about Moneyball there and then the Oakland Athletics. Of course, that's baseball. And to me... 2020 cricket is the closest thing mm, to baseball w- without being baseball because of its its truncated nature, short, sharp, truncated nature. I don't. I, I admit I don't watch a lot of baseball, but what, from what I've seen, those crucial plays, there seem to be a lot more similarity between baseball and T20 cricket than any other form of cricket. That's why perhaps this type of, of stats-based approach works better for. What seems to me for T Twenty cricket, but I have, a, I have, as I said, I have a really open mind about it, about how you can use it in in the longer forms of the game. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not only about money, certainly, and that was something that Moneyball proved. It's not how much you spend; it's how cleverly you spend that money. Well, that was the, the sort of argument within the book. Certainly, Mumbai Indians in the IPL. For those who are interested in the IPL, they are the most expensively bought team They're with the richest owner. And they're bottom of the league, having lost all three games so far. So it just proves that it's a very difficult science, the art of picking a a T20 team. If you've got some views on this, by the way, we'd love to hear them. If you use the hashtag AskTheAnalyst and post a question on Twitter or Facebook using that tag, hashtag AskTheAnalyst, we'll try and A, respond, and B, maybe include some of your questions next week. And actually, also, can you please leave reviews of this podcast on iTunes if you remember, because that always helps too. Don't forget this podcast is now supported by The Cricketer Magazine, and you can get 20% off your subscription to The Cricketer Magazine. A new issue is out very shortly. If you go to www.thecricketer.com forward slash podcast, and you'll get excellent deals on your subscription of the Cricketer magazine. Thank you, Simon, for that interview with Dan Weston. That was really interesting. Hope you enjoyed it. Speak to you next week. Bye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.